Three, two, one. Welcome everyone to There Will Be Bugs, an insect podcast where we cover a variety of entomological topics. I am one of your hosts, Ben, and I'm joined by our other host. I'm Zilla. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing insects and culture. But before we get to that, it's turning into fall here in New York. Yep. The leaves are starting to change. We're getting on some more precipitation. It's cooler. It's very pretty. I had to dig out my long underwear. Yeah. I've been wearing a hoodie to work, and it's now time for the insects to start going away, if that makes sense. Uh, there's definitely time. There's definitely less of them, uh, except for there's a lot of brown marmated stink bugs and box elder bugs on the house. So they're trying to find a nice place to overwinter. Uh, also the Asian uh, multicolored lady uh, bird beetle, which is a mouthful. Um, they're also all over the house trying to find their way in. We had uh, probably a few thousand of them in the basement last winter. I know my, my favorite part of springtime is when they all come crawling out of the walls. It's like bug... Bug apocalypse. Actually, what's the opposite of an apocalypse? It's like that. But Arm... no, not yeah. Armageddon. No, that's all. That's like a synonym for an apocalypse. Anyway, it's the, go- great. the golden, the golden age of ladybird beetles, yeah. the gilded age. Yeah, last year there was one afternoon where I just watched them crawl out of the doorframe. It was great. But besides that, the asters are starting to fade away. The Smooth-stemmed aster and the, I think it's the New England or the New York aster, one of those two, I can't remember the common name, is still blooming, but the goldenrods, for the most part, have stopped blooming, and, like, the flea banes have stopped blooming, so the resources are getting pretty scarce for insects out there. Uh, But today, we're going to be covering insects and culture, which is a little different than what we might usually cover. But I wanted to switch it up a little bit, and for this topic, I was looking to cover insects and cultures pre-European exploration of the Americas, so 1492, and I wanted to focus more on positive insect, uh, cultural insects. There's a lot of negative connotations with insects in general, and so I wanted to focus. Yeah, plagues. So we're not going to be covering like the stations and things, the locusts in the Bible or anything like that. And not to say that there aren't significant insect symbols in post exploration of the Americas. So the Colorado potato beetle in World War II was a big source of propaganda for the Axis powers. And then um, kind of to go off the plague thing, the Rocky Mountain, Mountain locust and during the Dust Bowl and uh, the swarms and devastation that it brought then. But we're going to be focusing on mostly pre-European exploration in the Americas, except for our last topic, which we'll kind of introduce at the end. Cool. But the first one, and I was just going off of symbols that I could really go off, like think of off the top of my head. There are some that I had to look up, but the first one that came to mind for me was insects in ancient Egypt. Sure, like the like the Brendan Fraser vehicle, the mummy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure Brendan Fraser did a lot of research of insects in before his 
uh, acting career for that. Sure. Um, and maybe that was that led to the downfall of his acting career. Because Frazier is a gift. What downfall? I don't. He's but having did, a comeback. Did he do anything after the Mummy? Except for the George Mummy too. George of the Jungle. Uh, I don't know if that's a good example. <laughs> I, you could have come. You could have said any other Brendan Fraser movie besides that, mm-hmm. including Fraser, which he's not even in. So, oh my God, they're rebooting Fraser. Uh, did you know that? No, I did not. Uh, uh, did they need to reboot it? Uh, Is this what America needed? Nobody asked for it. Anyways, examples of. <laughs> Kind of the famous example of insects in Egypt is the scarab beetle. And for them, it was more specifically the dung beetle. So uh, scarabus uh, sacer, the sacred scarab, was used as a symbol for kind of the the rebirth of, of the sun every day. The Egyptians used the sacred scarab to represent the rising sun being pushed across the sky, much like a scarab beetle pushes a ball of dung ah, across the sand. Right. Interesting. Um, and so instead instead of a big ball of dung, it's a big gaseous right. star. Okay. And that this this was expanded on to represent a metaphor about how the sun god can create means for a new birth. Uh, so this is like, if we're going in the hierarchy of things, the sacred scarab is probably the most important example to the Egyptian people that we're going to cover. But we'll go on to now the heart scarab. This type of scarab was carved into large amulets that were usually made out of a green stone. Um, and they were inscribed on the back of the scarab, the chapter... 30B of the Book of the Dead. And not to stay away from the mummy and (laughs) their references to the Book of the Dead. Purpose of this was the heart scarab after it was inscribed with this chapter was buried with the, the mummy to control the memory of this person in the halls of justice after their their death. And I'm not super familiar with going into like the whole mythology and religion of the Egyptian people. But Egyptian ancient Egypt was all about preparing for the afterlife. Yes. You know? and, and all of, like their whole burial rites were about being prepared to succeed and, you know, receive abundance in the next world. So Yeah. And this was one of those ways that they did that was uh they would put this heart scarab with the mummy and one of the th- one of the parts of the afterlife to them was uh, in the halls of justice. And this was to help keep that person control their memory because there, it was thought that they, they had trouble with their earthly memories when they entered this, this hall. And I think in, in ancient Egypt, they believed that after you die, you go to this hall of justice and some God, weighs your heart and decides if you've done good or evil. I'm, I'm going kind of off the top of my head on that, but I, there's something, there's definitely like a scales of justice thing in the afterlife. And, um, and I know that there's some like memorabilia that they take, they take along with them just to try to secure their place in the afterlife. Perfect. I'm, I'm so glad you did your research because <laughs> uh, even though I was preparing for this podcast, I did not. <laughs> I tried to not get too far into the weeds because there, th- there, there could have been. I could have gone into the weeds real deep. 
I did that off the top of my head, so don't like quote me in a scientific paper or anything. But another type of scarab was the uh, commemorative scarab. Um, this played a social role of spreading royal knowledge, wealth, and status. These were basically like carved amulets again that were propaganda. So you would carve the name of like a of some sort of official or ruler on the back of them and it just kind of spread the word of that official or that ruler. Is so this is this still a burial scarab or is this something that got like passed around in like everyday life and living life? This got passed around in living life. Uh, and again it was to it was advertising f- the achievements of the royals. Cool. The next one They're about that in Egypt. Yeah, no, it's all it's all about and a lot that of fame cultures, yeah. and paparazzi. This is this is pre-paparazzi propaganda. Like, oh, who do you got on your scarab? <laughs> Let me see. Um, the next is more of a more of a generic term, and this is more of for the common people. So all these like uh, the two scarabs before were more. They were more of a upper class thing where the scarab amulet is more of a just for the common folk. So these were probably much smaller representations. Again, you couldn't afford maybe more of a you couldn't afford like the expensive stones. They might have just been carved out of common rock that you could find. And um, they were. But commoners, I'm pretty sure, did a lot of the same burial rites as similar. Obviously, there weren't. You know, they weren't getting buried in the Valley of the Kings or anything, but but a lot of the same traditions, I think, that the royals carried, common people did as well on a smaller scale. Exactly. They they wouldn't have the same accruements, like... Accoutrements. Accoutrements. So it wouldn't be like... They wouldn't have, like, a gold coffin or, like, a jade scarab. They would just be, like, a more common stone... Scarab, but these were still really important to these people. They were, and these scarabs were worn during uh, life, uh, usually as jewelry. So they could be a ring, a necklace, or a bracelet. And the blank under the great thing is the blank underside of the scarab was perfect for engraving. So they could do, I don't know, to my sweetheart, love <laughs> your mom. But you know, it, it was much more of a common, just like jewelry type. Uh, scheme where you could you could have important engravings that were more important to your family or like your loved ones on these sorts of scarabs uh, there were there was obviously some commoners commoners so they were kind of like mass produced and then could be customized yes exactly that's cool and and there was there was obviously some commoners that could afford better stones than others but so you could still get some nice some nice stones and these these common scarab amulets, but again, a lot of them were probably just. I mean, Egypt lasted a long time, but there were there were periods of time where they had a really robust middle class. So yeah, um, there there was probably uh, you know at least semi precious stones, and I know that they did they did burial masks in gold for some middle class like more commoner people so uh-huh so it probably would depend on the period and like you know what was the total status of the of yeah. the kingdom at that time yeah ancient egypt is like is a long time it's <laughs> a lot of years so and, and even though these they might have been 
very plain and very and very basic. They were still like an an obviously important symbol to the people because a lot of people had them. They you know we found we've we have found a lot of these just common uh, scarab amulets. Cool. Uh, these scarab amulets showed started showing up around the sixth dynasty, so that was about uh, two thousand two hundred BC. And the Egyptians started moving away from the scarab symbol around 30 BC. So 2,000 years. Of 2,000 years of, of scarabs. scarabs and a lot of generations, if you consider probably how long they lived back then. And at that time, the, the goose, the cat, and the frog were becoming more of the fad. They were the inn at that mm. time. So there was a lot more of carvings of these. Another symbol that we see in ancient Egypt is the uh, golden fly. This has been pinpointed more towards the 18th dynasty. So that's about 1550 to 1292 BC. There's a lot of conflicting evidence about why and to whom these were actually given. Some people believe that they were just worn as a superstition, again, to protect people against flying creatures, whatever that may, may mean. Okay. But there's also evidence to show that they were gifted to military leaders, possibly as, like, achievement medals. Queen Aotop II had three large golden flies and two silver flies in her tomb with her. Does she have any Spanish flies? Mmm... I'd, uh, I think the Beastie Boys drank all that. Uh, she And she was known to actively fight in battles and was one of the leaders on the front lines with, the, with her troops. Um, and so that's kind of why a lot of people believe that golden flies were given to military leaders for excellence. Because there's this correlation between her having the, her, them in her tomb and her being known as like a, a excellent military figure. That's pretty cool. Um, but whatever the reasons they were, they were uh, obviously important because they were made out of gold. And the Egyptians have just such a love for gold. Is there any culture that was like, meh, gold, it's no, fine. Probably <laughs> you know, like, not. like everybody loves gold. There's just, there's just something to it. There, There is just something to it. And that could probably be a whole different podcast, an anthropological yeah. <laughs> uh, podcast uh, just about like humans relationship with gold but the next culture we're going to move to and this is going to be kind of a shorter one is Greek culture so in 8 AD Ovid published his uh, magnum opus called Metamorphosis or Metamorphosis it, it, it got translated from Greek slash Latin so there's probably some some uh, leeway there. Sure. The book has an underlying theme of transformation, and there are parallels throughout the book to insect metamorphosis. Also, in mythology, the princess Psyche is often depicted with butterfly I think that's wings. Psyche. Psyche. It might be Psyche. I don't know. Uh, it, she's like a she's like a rad dude in the nineties, maybe. <laughs> whether whether or not you pronounce the e in that. She was... Somebody knows. You're going to get letters. I'm sure. I'm sure my massive fan base will all send me very strongly worded letters. And I'm, I will welcome those letters. And then toss them into a recycling bin. 
Psyche or psych is often depicted with butterfly wings. The Greek word uh, psyche or psyche translates to butterfly and soul. The butterfly continues to have links in Greek culture to the soul throughout Greek history. And that's that's all we need to really talk about the Greeks. I feel like they get plenty of... They get a lot of coverage. They do get a lot general, of coverage. Yeah. So that that's good for them. We're going to move on to uh, Native American culture. Uh, spe- more specifically, like, northern like North America, Native American culture. And just a note for this, the most of my information is going to be about people of the, like the Western, nowadays Western US. Um, and that's because, and you already knew this, but that's because uh, by the time uh, European explorers and like settlers got over to that part of the country, uh, we were, we decided that it, maybe we should keep some of the artifacts from these native peoples where like the Eastern, the Eastern Native Americans just like really, really got the hose. Not, not to say that the Western people didn't, but like the Eastern people, like their culture got destroyed and the, any sort of artifacts and they got God. Well, and I think anything we know comes from the culture themselves. So maybe the ones in the West were a little more prepared to <laughs> to preserve their culture because they the, saw us coming. They knew it was coming. The Algonquin legend said that bees had stingers to protect them as they worked. Well, wasps uh, imitated the bees in order to gain the same advantage. You know, a little, a little, yeah, and a little like anti-wasp propaganda right there, but I thought it was like an interesting one. In uh, uh, Navajo culture, the dragonfly symbolized the availability of water, which if you think of these people who lived in the desert, this was a really, really important symbol to them because water is everything. And especially when you're living in a place where there is very scarce water. Yeah. As someone, as someone who has hailed from the desert, yeah, I grew up in the desert, and I, we, I saw dragonflies very occasionally visiting lakes and stuff, and they always feel, they always felt kind of special and unusual. Now I see them all the time because I live in a wet place, but when I was a kid, they were kind of elusive. Uh, yeah, and so they, they made the. I'm sure they made the correlation between even if they didn't know it directly that like the dragonflies need water to complete their life cycle because they're um the the nymphs are uh, aquatic so there would be no adult dragonflies without water there's also a few cool stories uh among the navajo people and uh these stories each of these separate stories i'm going to mention had like a main character that was some sort of insect um the first one there was a story that had a a a large fly is this still navajo yes this is still navajo culture um there was a story uh that had a large fly as like the character which based on like some of the artifacts that we have like found one way or another scientists believe that this was like a tachinid fly um and this character in these stories was usually a helper or a counselor of humans providing assistance so like a very a very like positive uh symbol of a fly where where like it was almost like a the owl where it was very wise and like counseled people another insect symbol in one of their stories is the lacewing 
This insect usually represented reproduction and was usually portrayed as an insect or a girl. Take your pick. If we can circle back to the fly thing for just one second. Yeah. The, it's cool to think about like a wise character who's there all the time like flies are. You know, like that's it's kind of it's cool that they saw something that was probably fairly abundant. I'm I'm guessing. I feel like flies are like pretty available. Um, it's cool to think about like them ascribing wisdom to something that, that like is right there with them all the time. Yeah, it's not like such like this rare symbol of right, like, like an owl. Yeah, or... where you like maybe see once a year or whatever, um, mm-hmm. depending on like the the circumstances but i i I, i'm not super familiar with the western species of insects but i imagine tachinid flies are 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 fairly common and so um i would imagine that is like if we're using examples of insects of the desert that might be one of the more common examples is that like a horse fly no those are tabanids so a different family they look like a fly it just (laughs) looks like a house fly May- to me <laughs> yeah may- maybe they're they might be pollinators I- i'm not super familiar with the family but another symbol in one of these stories is the butterfly this character often symbolized love foolishness foolishness or temptation um there was also uh, sickness in these stories associated with butterflies and uh like some of the symptoms of the sickness included frenzy fainting and trembling which is interesting. Maybe it has to do with kind of how when uh, with butterflies fly, they're uh, almost a little sporadic in like their wing beats and like how, yeah, they, how they might like dart around a little bit. They also sort of look like they're f- mostly falling sometimes <laughs> when you watch them. You know, I can see that. Uh, so this next character isn't an insect per se, but it is um, an arthropod. So the spiders. Uh, and this was like a really important example to these people. So I thought it would be um, important to include it in this. Stretch a little. Yeah. Um, So spiders were very uh, important to the Navajo people. In their culture, it's believed that a spider woman taught the Navajo Navajo people how to weave, much like how spiders might like weave a a web. And uh, traditional Navajo blankets had a hole in the center of them that represented the center of spider webs. That's cool. Um, so that was like an homage to uh, to like this this spider figure that like taught the people how to weave. Which you know, if, if you're making blankets and like baskets and stuff like that, that's like super important culturally. And so like it was something that they wanted to like to respect by by showing this in like the products that they made. That's so cool. I love that. The last one that we're gonna cover of like the uh, of like a uh, Navajo stories is the cicada. This is <laughs> this insect was uh, usually portrayed as like a humpbacked flute player. Um, so specific. It is very. Some of these are like very specific, and some of them are um, are not so specific. It might just have to do with like the availability of like the the information from from these people cicada was used to represent uh, reproduction uh, and fertility, which is, is like kind of stretching on like the lace wing as well. But again, cicadas feel sort of abundant too, right? They come, when they come, they come, like they come a lot in, of them Yes, come. in large numbers. That, yeah. So to go on, I, I know I said that that was kind of like our last Navajo uh, story, but uh, I'm going to touch on the, the, the specifically the story of creation in, in the Navajo people. And this is known as the emergence. 
the story in this story there are four underworlds under our current fifth world the site of origin which was the first world was inhabited by 12 different insect people so there was dragonflies red ants black ants red beetles black beetles white-faced beetles hard beetles uh, yellow beetles, dung beetles, bats, which is not really insect, <laughs> but it's in there. Uh, cicadas and white cicadas. In this first world, in this like where where like the um, origin of people come from, these insect people committed adultery and fought with each other. And for that, they were expelled from this world via a wall of water that was issued by the gods. Man, unrelated, but so many cultures have flood myths. Yes. Which is <laughs> it, interesting. It is very interesting how there's a lot of like parallels between these religions that may have never encountered each other bef- yeah. in, in their formation. The stories can be very universal. Yes. It's, it's cool. Yeah. Because humans are just very universal, which is, is fun. So the insect people left this first world because of, you know, being expelled by the gods. And they went to this second world, which was inhabited by uh, swallow people. So like bird people that lived in mud homes. Um, The insect people sent out the cicadas to explore this new world. uh, But they found that the world wasn't very hospitable. Although the, the, the insect people did decide to sit, stay, even though it wasn't very hospitable. But it wasn't flooded. It so. wasn't flooded. It was better than their, la- their last up. option. <laughs> um, however, they were expelled from the second world for sexual misconduct only after a day. Insects be fucking. You know, they, <laughs> they, do, do, they do fornicate a lot, you know, when you think about it. They, they left that world and entered the third world. This world was barren as well, but it was inherited by grasshopper people who lived in uh, holes. Unfortunately, they were expelled from this third world for having, uh, you know, some cat like casual sexual relationships. Incest be fucking. <laughs> and they were, and they left uh, for the fourth world. Upon arriving at the fourth world, the cicada, the cicada people found a place for them to all live. They, uh, there was already, like, people living there who tended fields and lived in homes. Uh, but those people, like, accepted the insect people and let them live there. You wanna, you wanna guess of why they, they were thrown out of this world? Insects be fucking? Yes. The, uh, the, uh, but before, you know, as that's, like, happening, the insect people gradually turned into humans in this world, but they continued their wicked insect, you know, mm. insect uh, ways mm. and continued their adultery. And the gods sent another wall of water to punish the tran- the transformed insect people. The, uh, the cicadas helped the people reach the fifth world. Uh, there are like current world, which was ruled by uh, Grebs. And that's G-R-E-B-E-S. I had to look that up. Um, it's a type of bird. Um, I had never heard that right. word before, uh, but so these birds live. Maybe it's a southwestern. Bird. It might be. Yeah. 
But these these birds lived in this fifth world, and the cicadas completed a challenge for these birds, and the humans were able to reside in this uh, in this fifth world. So the grubs sent them on a fetch quest. Yep. And in return, they got to stay. Yep, and they got to stay, and that's where they that that's where they like resided. To them, they're like in this fifth world. To move on to another group of native people, the Hopi. Uh, I, I I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, but it's H O P I. The Hopi native peoples also have insects in their mythology. They believe that when they left the underworld, the the creation, the, you know, during this creation, they are accompanied by uh, what's called uh, kachina. These kachina were spirits that assisted the Hopi people. And it was thought they are the original uh, Kachina were killed by the enemies of the Hopi people. Um, however, the Hopi could still receive benefits from the Kachina if they wore Kachina costumes during their um, ceremony. Some of the examples of these costumes are um, like costumes of bees, wasps, uh, cicada, butterflies, robber flies, crickets, and dragonflies. The robber fly one I thought was really cool because I'm a big fan of robber flies and it's I, I feel like it's kind of like a grazed over uh, fly. Another cool aspect of the uh, the kachina is that they take the, these like symbols or these figures uh, take on different roles and appear in different ceremonies at different times of the year. So uh, one of the examples is the cicada uh, kachina appears in the beginning of summer and is kind of like the the representation of like the season like going into its like growth you know like summer is like a time of growth and and the cicada was used to represent that. We're going to move on now to uh, insects in Chinese culture and uh, just like some bullet points are uh, so the it, in traditional Chinese culture, uh, seeing a mantis was a sign of good fortune and prosperity. Also, like the cicada was seen as a creature of high status because it, it's found high in treetops. It's cool that, I mean, it's amazing how much these insects spread, you know, like the cicadas live everywhere and mantises live everywhere. Like they're really, really an abundant little critter, aren't they? Yeah, and, and that like these different people picked these same symbols to represent, uh, for the most part, like kind of similar aspects of their lives. But the, uh, the cicada was also considered pure because they, uh, the, the Chinese people like said that they, su uh, subsist on dew. This isn't entirely true, uh, but adult cicadas will feed occasionally on tree fluids with their piercing, piercing, sucking mouth parts. But it was this idea that they're like feeding on this like pure substance that just like condenses from the atmosphere and like is super clear on like the objects it condenses on and like the cicada like only drank that because it's sure, it's, it's so kind pure of, kind of romantic yeah. imagery yeah it, ancient Chinese ideology suggested that officials uh, would resemble cicadas. Uh, and and more of like a figurative sense. So they should reside high, they should eat a pure diet, and they should have sharp eyes. Okay. Maybe a little big brother-ish, but... <laughs> you know, big cicadas Big cicadas watching you. watching you with a mustache. The headwear of rulers had a golden cicada on them with large eyes. 
This, the life cycle of cicadas uh, symbolize spirits arising from the ground to transform into their final, uh, their final form. So like as the, the cicadas maturing and the immature like crawls out of the ground and it makes its transportation, transformation into an adult. That's kind of what the, the Chinese people associated with um, like these spirits arising from the, the ground and like transforming into their final form. In the Han Dynasty, jade amulets carved into cicadas were placed in the mouths of the deceased to symbolize the hope for rebirth and immortality. So it's kind of another example of an insect helping you through the afterlife. Yes, exactly. Just like the sim, like you know, if cicadas can do it, if cicadas can come from the ground and like make this transformation, like our spirits can, uh, our spirits can too. An, an, uh, an anecdote from Zhuangzi talks about uh, Zhuangzi getting distracted by a cicada while out jay hunting. During this story, the cicada was eaten by a mantis as uh, Zhuangzi was watching it, and then the mantis uh, was eaten by a jay closely after that. And the tale kind of turned into uh, a saying, as the mantis catches the cicada, the jay is close behind. And this was thought as like a lesson about the, the circle of life. In the end, I guess everyone gets eaten by the jay. The big wheel of jay will roll <laughs> over you. Uh. The, the last group of people I'm going to be talking about is the uh, uh, Aboriginal Australians. Man, Aboriginal Australians are amazing because they have like an oral history that goes like way, way back into prehistoric times. It's, it's really cool. I'm going to preface this by saying a lot of ancient cultures ate insects, but I didn't really want to make the actual like eating of insects like the important part um a lot of these ancient cultures like subsided on insects in some way or another and that was super important for their diets probably do a whole podcast just yeah (laughs) but the aboriginal australians why i'm mentioning them is because they took it like to the next level with like how important some of these insects were to them like these uh these insects that they like basically worshipped and also ate were represented in their artwork and their spiritual practices. So the honeybee was a, an important figure in the ceremony of the uh, Marangu clan. Um, sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. And then in Central Australia, in Central Australia, the witchetty grub was a staple food for the people living there. I don't know if you've ever seen the witchetty grub, but it is like a very, very large grub, large. like almost like a so- like it's almost like sausage sized. Um, cool or gross? I don't know. I hear that they're really good, and like these people. I wonder what the texture, the texture is like. You know, mm. I, I feel like. As a Westerner, when I think about eating bugs, the part that's kind of hard for me to overcome is like, what is it going to feel like in my mouth? It's probably going to be like liquidy in the center. mm -mm. I don't even like eating jelly donuts. (laughs) (laughs) It might be like a big jelly donut. I don't want that. These people in Central Australia, they had ceremonies honoring these insects that would be performed um, in the efforts to increase their abundance um, because these grubs were so important to them. And they also had uh, songs that they create about these larvae because they were so valued. Just like the um, the writing down and like the, the physical figure creating of these insects, they also had like these these songs to represent them as well. Does that grub grow up 
into a large insect. Yes, I can't. And I I really should have looked this up. I can't remember if it turns into a butterfly or a beetle, but it does. But it's a big bug. It is. Yes. It doesn't. Yep. I don't know why it wouldn't be a big bug, but I don't know. Nature's weird sometimes. (laughs) So that kind of concludes all the, uh, the different Uh, ancient cultures that I wanted to cover and then I wanted to get into more of a modern topic that I think we're both invested in sure if that's if that's appropriate to say and uh, I wanted to talk about insects and tattoos and like the tattooing insects and I, I I thought about this for a little bit and I thought it was like interesting one would you uh, here let me let me start over and do you tattoo a lot of in insect tattoos yeah so i was gonna say i don't know if we've talked about this on this podcast yet but i i'm a tattoo artist yeah if i never tattoo a butterfly ever again i would be so stoked yeah i tattoo a lot of insects but i tattoo a lot of like the cute insects you know like the popular insects like Uh Um, butterflies and dragonflies are probably the big ones and then maybe bees and ladybugs ladybugs after that uh-huh. and then moths moths are kind of having a moment right now the more of the gothic butterfly yeah yeah a little, a little like off the beaten path butterfly yeah and it's i love tattooing moths but i hate tattooing butterflies and i i i think it's because moths are just more fun to tattoo butterflies are kind of fiddly with their all the little like negative space circles mm, in their wings uh-huh. they're just um and they're... i've just and i've tattooed so many of them a little more contrast in like the colors they have to tattoo with butterflies or yeah I don't know they're just I it's I think generally the reason that I don't I'm kind of bored of them is is the negative space like little white circles okay because everybody gets a monarch butterfly you know uh-huh. that is that is the butterfly because <laughs> everybody everybody's grandma loved monarch butterflies I'm sorry if your grandma loved monarch butterflies but she was not being very original. But I'm getting, I don't, there's, I'm noticing on Instagram that like millipedes and centipedes are getting, are getting kind of popular. I'd uh-huh. love to tattoo one of those. There's these, they're, they're really cool stylized ones that I see. And then um, like scarabs and beetles I'm uh-huh. starting to see more and more of. I thought about that for a little bit to, so to kind of confirm that it's like you do tattoo a, a decent amount of insects. Sure. But it's only the cute ones. You know, uh-huh. I, until I met you, I never tattooed like a grasshopper or a cicada uh-huh. or or anything outside of like the normal cute ones um it's interesting that there there is like this general dislike of insects in modern culture especially uh western culture but it seems to be like a common theme for tattoos but it, it is oh and spiders sorry i know spiders didn't isn't yeah but no no that i i think we can just like talk about like but, arthropods but in general only black widow spiders is it on uh, is it on widows yeah only only widows <laughs> only widows get black widows I I like to think of, like, what are some of the common, uh, like, motifs at play here? So if you're tattooing a lot of butterflies, we obviously saw a lot of uh, examples of, like, butterflies in ancient cultures and what they symbolized. What do you, as a tattoo artist who tattoos a lot of butterflies, what do you think the butterfly tattoo represents? And also, (laughs) to people who are getting a tattoo out there, don't think your tattoo has to mean anything. (laughs) That's a whole other podcast. 
So a lot of butterfly tattoos are memorial tattoos. I, um, I feel like that's a pretty common one. I also have done... A lot of times, I've done like um, what do you call a bunch of butterflies? Like a flock of butterflies? Oh no, it's a, a it's a kaleidoscope. A, really? Yes. That's yeah, cool. I learned this the other day from uh, my Ento class. That's kind of rad. A kaleidoscope so, of butterflies. So I've done kaleidoscopes of butterflies with like all of their grandkids' names or children's names. Like it's a, it's a pretty common, I don't know, memorial, like memorial or or immortalizing. I guess. Uh-huh. Um, There's a word for there. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's one for an etymology podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I think, I think insects, again, the cutie insects could probably come up a lot in memorializing or I marking a transition in life because, you know, butterflies go through metamorphosize. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like insects are big for remembering people. In general, so yeah, maybe it's maybe it's just like in Egypt and China, where there's an insect sort of helping you through the afterlife. If you could look through your crystal ball, what do you think is going to be the next insect tattoo fad? If you if you think there is one, so you did kind of moths are gaining some popularity. I would, yeah, I would say moths is my yeah moths is my you know especially like luna moths and those um there's like this african moth that is kind of it almost looks like the opposite of a luna moth where it's it's bright red that's i've done uh one or two of those right now in tattooing like really fine line um like black work with stipple shading is is having a moment and like moths look really good in that what is stipple shading Stipple shade. It's like it's shading with dots. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And it's like that pointillism mm-hmm. yep. style. Okay. Yep. Cool. I took an art class once. That's you. You know. <laughs> um, uh, it, okay. To fi- to finish this, out, I'm gonna finish out asking you a question. Okay. We're gonna kind of switch this up a little bit. If there was an insect tattoo that you really want to keep doing, or like what would like to see gain popularity, what is it? I want to tattoo a millipede. I feel like I've pitched millipedes to a few people as cover-ups lately because they're kind. You know, you can kind of put them wherever. So they're uh-huh. a good cover-up insect. Um, and yeah, I've just have seen really cool millipedes or centipedes on Instagram, um, and that would be that would be fun. That'd be a fun jam. Do you think? To, to try and really actually and yeah. well and to go back for a second I, I really like tattooing anything that I've never tattooed before so okay. there's so many there's so many little insects out there and even you know critters and woodland creatures and plants whenever anybody brings me a plant even that I've never tattooed before that's awesome so I'm a big fan of anything that's like kind of outside of what I usually do so like a, a bearing beetle or or yeah a yeah anything, beetle anything or... I tattooed on you. <laughs> uh, that concludes our episode for today. I hope you all enjoyed listening and remember to stay spineless. <laughs>